G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. Really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC podcast. We don't ask for much in return. They'd be incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcasts or Acast and leave us a five-star review. Um, obviously, other reviews are available, but uh, we'd prefer you to give those to other podcasts. So there's a couple of reviews to uh, read out. So uh, run one from uh, Pitts, Pitts Rot. Interesting. Um, so really like these podcasts to help stay up to date and, and learn something with very little effort which is helpful when crunch for time particularly perfect for car journeys when working the garden which is, which is good to me um so thank you very much for that and uh, and other ones uh, um as as well um thinking that they like think tackle really important and relevant veterinary topics which is good um great way to keep up to date and listen to the latest advice from uh, from specialists which is good on commutes great for car journeys um and uh, um and even people who are just about applying to vet school and finding these really interesting Interesting. So, so thank you for that. It's really important that you uh, um, will read out some uh, more um, a little bit a little bit later on or another another podcast. But it's really important for us to, for the metrics to get this information out to people who want to listen to it. So thank you very much for for that today. So uh, so joining um, myself in the studio uh, today um, we have uh, Dr. Simon Cook. Uh, welcome, uh, Simon. Simon is one of our uh, lecturers in emergency and critical care. How are you today, Simon? Yeah, good. Thanks very much for having me. Oh, this is my, my, my pleasure. Thank you for being corralled uh, into here. It only, uh, only took a, a few months. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so I thought what we are going to talk about today would be um, uh, managing and uh, uh, assessing sort of pericardial effusion in, in dogs. Cool. Um, and you've uh, you've actually uh, published a, a, a paper on that, but don't worry, I'm not going to not going to quiz you <laughs> on, on on that. As it's we, pending, as yeah. <laughs> in in the uh, in the publication list for for the Journal of Veterinary Emergency Critical Care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which well done. So um, so if we talk about dogs that uh, that pre- present with a pericardial effusion, I suppose that how I suppose how do you think that you assess that as a as an emergency veterinarian, and what are you interested in doing to stabilise them before you do anything? Yeah. Okay. So, I guess they can they can present in a, in a few different ways. Really, quite often they're the uh, non-specifically flat, large breed dog. Um, you don't ent- identify anything immediately obvious, other than sort of uh, marked lethargy and, and potentially some cardiovascular instability on initial presentation. Um, they don't necessarily scream. There are a few sort of uh, physical, examina- physical examination or patient side assessment. Uh, findings that can be pretty specific for pericardial effusion, but otherwise they're not necessarily uh, present with one, um, uh, you know, one presenting complaint only, which is a diagnostic, unfortunately. Pathognomonic. Exactly, yeah. There's, there's a quote-unquote pathognomonic clinical finding, but uh, yeah, I'm sure you're asking about that anyway. <laughs> well, what, what is what is? Well, that? I suppose, so the um, pulsus paradoxus, which is um, a variation in your... Um, pulse amplitude on inspiration so a reduction in your pulse amplitude on inspiration uh, has been it's often quoted as as as, as pathognomonic for, for pericardial effusion but there are another, a couple of other disease states that can cause it it's relatively likely that if you've got you know the, your clinical picture fits and you find that then great you go chasing pericardial effusion for sure but uh, but large space plural space disease and cable thrombosis things like that can, can cause it too so yeah, I suppose it, it, I suppose it's something that might be subtle as as well. It's not necessarily something that always sort of stands out. I think in every yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. And often we find that you know if you say to someone, oh, "What do you think about the pulses?" and they don't necessarily find it, and then you tell them it's got a pericardial effusion, and you <laughs> you can pretty often convince yourself. Uh, yeah. 
Okay. So, you, um, so in your general assessment, I suppose normally these uh, these patients are going to be tachycardic, aren't they, with, with weaker pulses, maybe for pulse paradoxus. Is there anything else you would do? You talk about patient like bedside uh, assessment. So, I suppose mm. you were thinking about the use of ultrasound. Is that uh, yeah, what you're yeah, leading definitely. to? Yeah, it's. I guess it's it's uh, expediting diagnoses of, of pericardial effusions uh, left, right, and centre. I expect uh, you know we used to rely on physical examination and, and thoracic radiography um whereas you know increasingly especially here anyway we have we have a the benefit of an ultrasound machine on an initial presentation of, of most emergencies so they can uh, we can include or exclude a pericardial effusion pretty quickly uh, and you know and, and deem how emergent the, the drainage is based on the whole clinical picture yeah do you think um, I suppose that was talk going through residencies that uh, looking at free fluid is sort of a, a, a simple thing to do with an ultrasound and, and agree agree that that is for the most part. Do you think it is there any traps for pericardial effusions in assessing that? Yeah, it's, it's, that's a cool question here because I think I mean it would, be, it would be great if in not many years it was a sort of a, a you know a, a day one skill that would be amazing. It's not not currently considered one, but it would be great if we got to that stage. Um, in terms of pericardial effusions, yeah, I think the thing that you're looking for, and, and yeah, they they, de- they are misdiagnosed for sure, um, both under and over. Um, things like chamber enlargements, pleural effusions, um, have often been sort of um, misappreciated as a pericardial effusion. And what you're really looking for is there being a taut membrane, um, you know, a sort of a spherical um, membrane that is evidently taut between the outside of the heart and 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 um, yeah, but outside of the heart, <laughs> outside of the fluid that you think is pericardial and finding this membrane there. Um, and that should be what you're aiming to document as it curves around either the cranial or cordable or border of the heart when you're scanning patient side. Um, do you always look for making sure there's tamponade as well? Or do you, depending on how sort of stable the patient is, is that how you make up your mind, whether you need to do something now or you've got a bit of time? Yeah, I guess it, it definitely, um, if, if they are tamponading, it's likely to expedite. Uh, you know, that, that patient is very likely or, or ultimately will um, require drainage at, at some stage. Um, there are other factors involved though if the dog is is not so systemically unwell it is not particularly tachycardic and we can for example squeeze in a full echocardiogram done by a specialist um, prior to drainage then we will Uh, that carries other advantages in terms of the diagnostic yield from the scan so if it is at all possible to to delay the centesis until after a a full specialist echo then we then we will um, but uh, why, yeah, why do we why do we do that? It, I, I, I expect it just gives better details around the level of the heart base um, and, and right oracle, which I guess are the areas of interest. Um, if you've got that clear hypoechoic fluid margin, uh, sort of yeah, yeah, margin between your pericardial sac and, and the base of the heart, uh, as contrast really. So we're looking for a, a tumor in that yeah. in that area that might have uh, might, might have caused hemorrhage to, to bleed yeah absolutely yeah 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 fair enough and and, and i think it, it i think they are quite hard to see if they're if they're subtle when we we have a look with uh, patient side ultrasound yeah. aren't they? but maybe I'll, uh, definitely our cardiologists are a lot better at, at doing that yeah. and it's going to bring up the um looking for that membrane and i think that's sometimes uh, hard to see because we there's definitely patients that uh, have massive left atriums that can uh, can cause a problem and in fact they can 
mm. cause uh, pericardial effusion as well. I don't know if they rupture your left atrium can, can cause that to be a problem. Yeah, yeah, we do we do see them from from time to time. I suppose they are sort of an often forgotten uh, patient group, um, but they do sort of stray a little bit from the typical presentations of most most sort of uh, most um, neoplastic or, or, or idiopathic etiologies are going to be in. Um, large breed dogs, your t- you know your golden retrievers and your German shepherds, and then and then you, you know, your pericardial effusion that you diagnose in a in a small uh, cavity, cavity <laughs> then you have to be pretty suspicious um, uh, and consider a, a cardiologist cardiologist's involvement for sure if you can. Um, we've always been historically quite scared of, and I wouldn't advocate doing it off the bat anyway, but draining those effusions because it's nice to have basically some pressure to limit the exsanguination from the left atrial hole but um uh, uh, in in the in the the literature to date uh, and and on personal experience there have been a few drained successfully um so you know, it's not that they won't necessarily need it but i would be very very cautious about deciding it was necessary um so if you if you if that, you have that patient come into you i would um have them fully evaluated get a, a proper echo and and a, a last ditch would be to, to drain it, to stick a needle into that pericardial sac. Okay, so if, once you identify a, a pericardial effusion and uh, and with or without, um, obviously that we're, we're working at Criminal Hospital as cardiologists around, we can ask them to, mm. to have a look. But if that's not available, it's, it's out of hours, or we think that we need to drain it anyway, mm. what is your your stock approach to mm. to draining these? And do you have do you have you know, I suppose as, as far as how the position patient is and anything you do ancillary to that and mm. what equipment you like to use yeah yeah. so i, I think it's less uh less scary than most people think uh and less difficult than most people think as well so uh and and i think um many people maybe they still do but, or, or but used to certainly want to anesthetize these patients and that's not there's not necessarily a, a a bad reason but many many people including us here we don't really in fact we very rarely rarely fully anesthetize patients for pericardiocentesis uh, uh, the vast majority of them being done under sedation with for example butorphan or uh, another opioid uh, if they're painful for any other reason um, plus minus minazolam plus minus a, a tiny smidge of propofol if you need it, for example. They're your sort of systemic sedatives that you might consider. Um, the need for for sedatives at all is a, is a good question because some of these patients will come in peri-arrest and they need uh, a, a needle in sooner rather than later and, and without sedation. Um, in those scenarios, you might consider just a small amount of local anaesthesia, so some lidocaine. Uh, at the at the site, uh, uh, or as an intercostal nerve block, um, and and actually many people would advocate using that in conjunction with your with your sedatives anyway. Um, I don't really mind. It comes down to sort of the the the, the emergent nature of the patient, the the amount of staff that you've got, your familiarity with familiarity with the techniques. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the vast majority of us would be using, for example, butorphan or midazolam as a sedative plus minus local lidocaine. Do you have a preference of whether they're in sternal or lateral accumbency or the right mm. or left side of the chest? So I guess I, so. I have a preference. Um, that's not to say that it's the correct thing to do, but uh, I will always do it through them in sternal recumbency um, under a slight sedation, um, and I approach from the right side. 
people you could debate this until the cows come home you know the right atrial tumor that may or may not be there is is, is probably easier to hit if you go from the right but your uh, main left coronary artery is easier to hit if you go from the left i'm not sure there's any good evidence behind uh, either of those but but again most people here will go from the right hand side in sternal recumbency or slightly tilted to the left for example um, just to uh, improve access uh, if not um even if you end up actually putting the effusion further over to the left-hand side in recumbency. But. And do you, do you find, uh, when did you use the, once you've established that there is a pericardial effusion, you've got your patient set up, do you um, use an ultrasound again or to guide a, mm. a needle? Or, or what, what sort of needles do you use? Yeah, so ultrasound... Um, Again, it kind of depends on sort of on on the the setting and how much how how many staff you've got, how many people that it would be useful to to teach from the procedure. If you want to be teaching ultrasound guided techniques, or you actually you want to line up and then get your your um, surgical field prepped and and go where you know the effusion is, uh, that's perfectly reasonable. I would still consider it quote unquote ultrasound guided if you've had a, a a look very closely with the machine and decided you're going to go there and the patient hasn't moved in between you de- determining that and then putting needle in um so you don't necessarily need to be to visualize your needle but if you've got the time to and, and the, the sort of um uh, experience to then 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 yeah go for it um it it it's, uh, is, is likely to be to be safer isn't it and more accurate if you can guide your needle into the pericardial sac um what we use um i guess you've got a few different options really historically we have always used basically a large bore peripheral cannula um so your your greys and your oranges uh, <laughs> colloquial terms um uh, but you, i mean you you would have prepped and clipped and prepped your 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 site uh and, and prepped it like a like a surgical procedure uh, having a having a drape um for sure um usually you're going to be going around the sort of three four rib spaces five maybe um but again it does a little bit vary depending on the on the access that you've got and the size of the effusion um i forgot what the original question was but so it's what, a technique so you, like types of needles aren't we yeah yeah yeah, or, but yeah so you so you you attach that to a um just an extension tube and a three root half and a syringe. yeah so it's helpful to have a, a large bore extension tube just to augment the sort of the flow of of, of blood um, to, to see if you can get as much as you can off. Um, uh, so yeah, I would, I would, if I was going to do a simple needle pericardiocentesis, and I would use yeah a catheter. Uh, once it's advanced, you connect a, a large bore extension tube, uh, a three-way tap with a, for example, twenty mil syringe. Um, I would try and keep one or two mils of that first drainage um, for for cytology, uh, plus or minus culture as necessary. Um, but after that, you can have somebody else draining or do it yourself if you've got you know, a, a spare hand. <laughs> so I suppose people might be concerned about um, causing arrhythmias or mm. going or exsanguinating from mm. the heart and maybe even not going in further enough if there is a pleural effusion as well, mm. that maybe they get caught at the first bit of fluid that comes yeah. out. So then any advice Tips. for yeah. for that? So yeah. I, it's not always going to be the case, but if you, for example, hit a, 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 a pleural effusion on the way through, um, it will not always uh, be uh, as hemorrhagic uh, as you might 
find a pericardial fusion. Most of the pericardial fusions that we change are grossly hemorrhagic in, in nature. So that can be one sort of clue to say that you're not actually into the pericardial sac yet. Um, ultrasound guidance would sort of avoid that problem, wouldn't it? You know exactly when, you, when you're in. Um, in terms of arrhythmias, for sure, yeah, I would have lidocaine drawn up and ready in the event that you either uh, induce or worsen um, any ventricular arrhythmias that are um, not uncommon in these patients anyway. Um, so, uh, yeah, I would have a, a, a 2 mg per kg dose of, of lidocaine drawn up. Um, other sort of safety thing, safety sort of um, um, nets I would have in place, I would, I would have these patients attached to if not receiving fluids at the time and um, let's say you for example you know there is a uh, an active bleed um be it before or after you've put your needle in to, 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 towards the heart um many of these patients would actually benefit from fluid resuscitation after the relief of the pericardial effusion anyway so it's nice to have that on standby if, for example draining the effusion doesn't relieve their cardiovascular instability they've been They've had limited preload for uh, for the length of their pericardial tamponade, really. Um, uh, so they may well require some volume resuscitation after drainage. Uh, it's like it's going to be of limited benefit pre, but you're probably not going to do any immediate harm by giving a fluid bolus pre if you if you are unsure or, or not happy, you know, not completely content interpreting your physical exam findings. Uh, and it, it may improve the patient, but it's unlikely to. And so how about, uh, what would you say to people who think that they might actually be in the heart without any arrhythmia or anything like that and uh, and exsanguinating from the heart itself? Yeah, uh, it's, I mean, it's very possible. I can't say, I can't say it's not, uh, It's it's been done for sure. Um, it would be that the, the clue would be that I guess the, the pulsatile nature of the, of the blood and and the, and the fact that it will probably clot relatively soon. But I think you're you're also relatively likely to get signs that you've uh, done that with regards to your arrhythmias. So that's the other reason to have them you know, attached to an ECG anyway. Um, but yeah, I don't think there's anything more specific than, than than a cautious approach in interpreting your ECG and, and pulsatile flow. I think it was, I, I give people jobs when we're doing these in, in house and uh, and always ask somebody to have a look at the ECG yeah. monitor and that's their that's your that's, sole job. That's yeah, their yeah. job mm. and uh, people always get distracted by looking at the needle going in <laughs> yeah. and yeah, yeah. you see the odd arrhythmia and you're like did you spot that? Did you? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, um, so doing that, but but also, so you use other other methods to uh, to drain pericardial effusions. Yeah, so the, we um, the uh, other options. I mean, you can buy specifically sort of centesis catheters, um, which are ultimately a glorified trocar, really. Uh, so it's like an over, uh, you know a larger bore over the needle, longer catheter. Um, they can be used for sure. Um, they have been, have been reported. The other technique that we use with relative frequency here is using a, a mylar chest strain. Okay, so we are using a sort of a, a modified Seldinger technique to insert a, uh, a twenty centimeter. We tend to anyway twenty centimeter tubes fenestrated to the eight centimeter mark mylar chest tube, um, and they can be used as a one-off. Um, and there is a potential that they might be of benefit in in using them. Uh, uh, as an indwelling catheter as well, uh, many people prefer them prefer to insert them just for the sake of of, of having uh, reliable drainage in the first instance and, and less worrying about kinking or movement of your peripheral IV cannula that you've secured access with initially. 
um, and, and then remove them straight away. That's very reasonable. Um, and we're, what we're ultimately trying to do over the next over the next few years is, is, is determining whether leaving them in place might carry a, a benefit. Um, so having an indwelling pericardial catheter is, is, is standard of care uh, for, for most human pericardial effusions. Okay. How long do they normally leave them in, roughly? Yeah, they're probably in for sort of three to five days or until the effusion um, cessates. Yeah. So it's, it's a bit more fiddly to use a, a cell digging technique because I suppose you've got to put a catheter into that pericardial space, put a guide wire into there, and mm. then take that catheter out and put the put the actual chest drain over that guide wire. Do you, did, were there, in the ones that you've done, do you think they're more likely to have arrhythmias because of that guide mm. wire, or the complication rate is pretty much the same for yeah, arrhythmias? so we're, we're part way through the, the prospective and I haven't looked at the, the data in a while but it doesn't, it doesn't seem to be any screaming differences. I don't certainly have the impression that there are any um, significant uh, yeah, there are significantly higher adverse events and specifically adverse events we're worried about would be arrhythmias, yeah um, and, and time-wise they, they actually they tend to go in pretty smoothly, pretty swiftly we're less than 10 minutes for sure. It's not like they're taking anything or rarely taking longer than that anyway. I suppose when you get it in, when you get the catheter, whether whether it's a, a, a um, mild chest drain, as you said, or just a, a normal peripheral um, cannula in the in the right place, mm. um, you normally know because the, once you start draining, the heart rate drops down mm. pretty precipitously yeah. and, and normally the perfusion improves the patient quite well. So normally you see that ECG rate go down down quite quite well mm-hmm. I suppose um yeah if you weren't in the right place it, it wouldn't do that yeah, yeah and people get concerned as well didn't they about if they are they in the right place or not but I suppose that uh, even if they damage their pericardium itself normally that fluid because the pleural in the pericardial space would be greater than the pleural space the fluid would leak out of there anyway so even if you are unsuccessful oh yeah you may well have just sort of you know you might well have just popped a hole and that's that's good enough to relieve the clinical signs for sure mm-hmm. yeah um, that's 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 relatively likely to happen actually that you pass a needle or a catheter or whatever you don't actually achieve fluid out you don't re- you know, uh, drain much but actually you relieve the the tamponade which I guess was the ultimate aim. Um, yeah. So before you said something that uh, you're going to collect a bit of bit of that pericardial fluid. Mm. So um, so what, what do we what do we do with that? Or what do you do with that? Mm now and yeah. what do you what do you ask the lab to look at i guess if force of habit is to say that we, we want to know that the, the bcv total solids get some cytology on it and, and have some available for culture okay because you know when you're draining it you don't necessarily know that you're going to be looking at uh the the most the two most likely etiologies which would be idiopathic and, and neoplastic um you don't know that you might you, you, i suppose you ought to have a clinical suspicion if you had a uh, an infectious etiology but um having some for culture is the reason that we were taking one in an edth tube and one in a plain tube um uh, but you could always submit that for culture if if it was deemed sort of relevant so i guess the main things we're interested in is is is, is cytology um occasionally <laughs> but not not frequently um, you might get a diagnosis of the underlying etiology based on um, cytology, but it is not a particularly frequent occurrence. Um, so I suppose if you are, if you know, if you're if you're struggling for cash and you uh, can afford to get specialist imaging, um, then maybe that would be a more appropriate use of of your. Uh, money, especially if, for example, you could do some in-house cytology to see that it was grossly hemorrhagic, and you know you get some, you know, no significant evidence of of you know a massive number of neutrophils or suspicions of intracellular bacteria, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. 
Um, so I guess, yeah, if, you, if you're strapped for cash, a combination of in-house cytology, PCV total solids, and, and, and getting some imaging, um, if affordable, you know, be, would be reasonable. Absolutely. And, um, so you, and so obviously, as he said, like idiopathic or neoplastic tend to be uh, tend to be their categories. And I suppose there's a grey, or isn't there a grey area in between idiopathic that might become neoplastic? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, there's some suspicions that some do end up being being uh, some idiopathics do end up being uh, neoplastic downstream, and that could be because of a sort of a, a progression, a genuine progression from an inflammatory to a neoplastic state, or it could just be because we've missed the tumor on the initial investigations. Um, I guess there are there are, in terms of the the effusion, some people have have looked at other um, ways to or other tests on the effusion to try and narrow down your um narrow down your diagnoses but none of them are i don't think unless you've got money to burn i don't think i would be necessarily using them so people have looked at lactate and glucose and yeah there are some differences but none of them have a good enough overlap to say that they're useful diagnostically um and the same actually in in um troponins like circulating uh, troponins have been, have been used and, and showed some uh, usefulness in, in delineating between neoplastic and idiopathic, but but not 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 to to the extent that I would use it as a as a as a complete cutoff, unfortunately. So apart from you having having a look at using uh, catheters in pericardial effusions, what what is there anything that's been this new for uh, pericardial effusions? New, yeah, new 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 stuff at the moment. Um, recent publications would include looking at the um, uh, potential contributions to pericardial effusions from infectious etiologies. Um, there was a publication just this year from Spain looking at um, the, the PCR prevalence of, of, of things like leishmania and, and babesia in, in patients with both idiopathic and neoplastic effusions and they had an interestingly high number of uh, PCR positives, um, I, not enough to say that we should be chasing those, uh, in, especially in this country. Although, uh, <laughs> give it a couple of years. Um, there are different techniques. I suppose it's a relative, it's an area that's not been very well, uh, or not been um, uh, research hasn't been very, very active in it for the last sort of ten twenty years. So I think it's kind of rejuvenating now, and, and other drainage techniques are coming to light, like the Milos, for example. People are using um, large bore uh, dialysis catheters, <laughs> essentially to to, to gain uh, good uh, flow on on drainage. Um, that I mean, the emergent nature and need for these um, these interventions, I suppose, depends on on on, on uh, the clinical picture, but 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 and also concurrently with the the, the use of patients like ultrasound, we're probably diagnosing more. Uh, pericardial effusions that aren't requiring of, of, of drainage so finding a pericardial effusion concurrently with a patient that's got SERS or got pancreatitis um, or has SRMA uh, that, that, that's, that has uh, been reported recently for sure okay so they don't necessarily need drainage but they can be useful diagnostically and there'll be a small small volume um, I guess that's the stuff that springs to mind. Cool. Um, so, is there uh, is there anything else do you think that we missed in, in actually sort of uh, managing these patients? So, I suppose how well, how how long um, do they remain in for? Do you uh, once you drain the pericardial effusion, as long as the diagnostics are n- negative, do you keep them in for 
24, 48 hours. Are, are they, so these for sort of yeah, idiopathics or neoplastic? I guess, idiopathics, yeah. Yeah, it's ultimately, if they don't, um, we haven't actually got good data on how f- how uh, quickly they reaffuse. Um, it's very variable from uh, yeah, from one to two days to to, to never ultimately. Um, so I would say if the dog has, has been has been cardiovascularly stable um, for the for the sort of uh, day or night following the procedure, then I would be happy to to consider a discharge if you manage to complete your investigations, um, and maybe, arguably, especially if you diagnose a neoplastic effusion or you know, uh, etiology which um, doesn't lend itself to to further or, or more aggressive management, then 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 I might be saying go home and have some time uh, if they're not going to to pursue aggressive uh, management. Yeah. Is there is there anything else you think we've we've missed in the in the grand scheme of uh, talking about pericardial effusions? Oh, I'm sure it's been one or two things. I think as I walk out the door, but uh, <laughs> nothing that's screaming. I'm well, happy to. Well, maybe entertain. there could be a part two. Oh yeah, let's do a part two. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we can Done. Do well, um, maybe we'll wrap it up there. So thank you very much for your time today, Simon. Um, and thank you for listening. So don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit-based device. And that way you don't even have to worry about missing a podcast. If you leave us a five-star review, that would be great. And don't forget to tell your friends. We'll ask Simon to tell his friends too. Um, and we'll place any show notes in the obviously uh, pages. So just type in obviously clinical podcast and you your search engine of choice and it should be top of the tree. If you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast, please get in touch. You can either email me at dbarfield.rvc.ac.uk or tweet at Don Barfield. Until next time, bye-bye.